Welcome to Seeking Jesus, a podcast for Latter-day Saints focused on learning all we can about Jesus Christ. This was originally designed as a video course. To see the visuals for this episode, please visit johnhiltonii.com slash seekingjesus. One evening on my mission, my companion, Elder Mercerby, and I were tracting in a neighborhood of small homes, each of which was surrounded by a fence. There was a sign on one gate that said, Beware of Dog. We saw lots of signs like that, and often there was no dog. The owner was just trying to scare people off. We rattled the gate to see if a dog would bark. Nothing happened. We rattled the gate even louder, but no dog came. So we opened the gate and walked inside. The gate swung shut behind us as we walked towards the door. I was a couple of steps in front of my companion when we heard a woof, woof, woof. A giant dog came running around the side of the yard. Elder Mercervi turned and ran for the fence. He began climbing it, and the dog was jumping up trying to grab his feet. But he made it over the fence and was safe. I, on the other hand, was in trouble. The dog was between me and the fence, and I couldn't see any other way to escape, so I just ran towards the front door and, without knocking, opened it and ran inside. Help! I yelled, help! A large man came running down the stairs and called off the dog. When the dog calmed down, the man turned and yelled at me and said, What are you doing in my house? I didn't know what to say, so I just said, well, we're trying to share the gospel. He cut me off. I'm not interested. And that was fine with me because I was just happy to be alive. Then the man said, what's the matter with you? Can't you read? He had a point. The sign, beware of dog, was clear, but my companion and I hadn't paid attention. I think of this story as a parable of sorts, of how some things can become so common to us that we don't give them enough attention. My companion and I had seen so many beware of dog signs that we didn't take this one seriously. I wonder if there's an analogy with the scriptures. Perhaps sometimes we take them for granted and we don't really read them carefully. That's one reason I find it helpful to find fresh ways to approach the scriptures. For example, reading the scriptures in Spanish or Chinese has helped me to refocus on the scriptural text. You've probably noticed that I use a variety of Bible translations in these classes. That also helps me see scripture in a new light. Another approach is listening to well-done audio narrations. Remember that in a first century context with much lower literacy rates than we have today, they were more commonly listened to rather than read. I especially recommend listening to the gospel according to Mark in one sitting. It takes about 90 minutes. There's a version by an actor named Max McLean, and it is really good. You can visit the course website for a link to a free version of his video. In fact, you might want to listen to the whole book of Mark before continuing with this class. Try listening to it from the perspective of somebody in the first century who is hearing about Jesus Christ for the very first time. Here's a short clip from Max McLean's version of Mark. The context is that Jesus is returning from the Mount of Transfiguration and a man approaches him. Teacher, I brought you my son who is possessed of a spirit that has robbed him of speech. Whenever it seizes him, it throws him to the ground. He rolls around, foams at the mouth, gnashes his teeth and becomes rigid. I asked your disciples to drive the spirit out, but they could not. Oh, unbelieving generation, Jesus replied, how long shall I stay with you? How long shall I put up with you? Bring the boy to me. So they brought him. As soon as the spirit saw Jesus, it immediately threw the boy to the ground. He rolled around, foaming at the mouth, gnashing his teeth. Jesus asked the boy's father, how long has he been like this? From childhood, he answered. It's often thrown him into fire or water to kill him. If you can do anything, take pity on us, help us. 
if you can, answered Jesus. Everything is possible for him who believes. Immediately, the boy's father exclaimed, I do believe. Help me overcome my unbelief. When Jesus saw that a crowd was running to the scene, he immediately rebuked the evil spirit. You deaf and dumb spirit, he said, I command you, come out of him and never enter him again. The spirit shrieked convulsed him violently, and he came out. Hearing this audio version caused a couple of things to stick out to me. First, I love how the man says, if you can do anything, and Jesus really focuses on that. If I can, of course I'm able to. Do you believe in me or not? And then the man says, I believe. Help thou mine unbelief. It may seem like the man is contradicting himself. Does he believe or does he not? I love this man because I think he represents all of us. He believes, but he still struggles. He believes, but sometimes doubts creep in. Sometimes we're like this man, believing, but struggling with unbelief. Sometimes we're like the disciples. We try to heal, but we don't succeed. But that's okay because Jesus is with us. He's patient and he can heal. Today, we'll be focusing our class on Mark because sometimes Mark gets lost in the shuffle of scripture. It's the shortest gospel account, and so much of it appears in Matthew and Luke. In an earlier class, we talked about how each gospel account is like a portrait of Jesus Christ. Today, I want to talk about five big-picture ideas we can learn about the Savior from Mark's portrait of Him. The first one has to do with Mark's portrayal of the human side of Jesus. Consider this question. Is Christ more human, or is He more divine? This is probably not something that we spend a lot of time talking about today, But in the early centuries of Christianity, it was a subject of debate. It's part of Christology, the study of Christ. Some early Christians argued that Jesus was 100% human, that there was no divinity in him at all. On the other hand, some Christians said that Jesus was 100% God, and other people fell in different places along the spectrum. Personally, I believe that Jesus is 100% human and 100% divine. I know the math doesn't quite work out, but with Jesus, all things are possible. The gospel accounts present Jesus in slightly different ways. Mark has a lower Christology than John. Lower Christology means that Mark tends to emphasize the human side of Jesus. In contrast, John with his higher Christology more often emphasizes the divine aspects of Jesus. Matthew and Luke probably fit somewhere in between. Mark's emphasis on the human Jesus reminds us that the Savior understands what we are going through. In Alma 7.11, we read, Jesus shall go forth, suffering pains and afflictions and temptations of every kind. Often, when we read this passage, we think about Jesus suffering in Gethsemane or on the cross. It's interesting to note, though, that in context, Alma doesn't mention Gethsemane. He talks about Jesus going forth. Not a one-time event, but a lifetime of events. As Jesus went forth in life, he experienced pain, disappointments, joys, sorrows, and fears, just like you and I. Consider the following verses. Jesus was moved with compassion. Jesus looked round about on them with anger, being grieved for the hardness of their hearts. They brought young children to him that he should touch them, but his disciples rebuked those that brought them. But when Jesus saw it, he was much displeased. Jesus, beholding him, loved him. My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? Compassion, anger, grief, disappointment, 
greatly displeased, love, exceeding sorrow, feeling completely abandoned. Can you relate to these emotions? Mark wants you to know that Jesus understands your feelings because he has felt them too. Take a moment to let that truth really sink in. Jesus felt what you feel. As he went forth, he suffered every kind of pain. He understands you. We'll call our second theme, the gospel, the kingdom, and servant leadership. If somebody were to ask you, what is the gospel? You would probably say faith in Jesus Christ, repentance, baptism, gift of the Holy Ghost, and endure to the end. That's true, and that's part of how the Savior defines his gospel in 3 Nephi. Notice that Mark introduces his account saying, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. I want to highlight a Greco-Roman meaning behind the word gospel. Remember our good friend, the Blue Letter Bible? If we were to go to Mark 1 and look at the Greek word that we have translated as gospel, it's euangelion, and it means good news. This good news has a specific context in some ancient Greek and Roman writings. When Greece defeated Persia, Greece sent messengers to take the gospel throughout the country. In other words, they were sharing good news, and the specific good news was a military victory. Consider another example. A stone inscription dating to 9 BC talks about the birth of Caesar Augustus, who had died five years previously and, in Roman belief, was now a god. It said, The birthday of Augustus, who has become God, has been for the whole world the beginning of the gospel concerning him. In this case, the gospel or good news being celebrated was that Augustus had been born. It appears that some Romans believe that Augustus' birth had led to a new era of peace. In their minds, Augustus was a savior. Seeing how the Greeks and Romans use the word gospel perhaps gives us a helpful framework of what Mark might have intended for his Greco-Roman audience to hear. It's like Mark is saying, contrary to the so-called gospel you've heard about, Jesus is the true king who came to proclaim peace. Mark contrasts the idea of the good news of military victories, or a leader such as Augustus, with the good news of victory over Satan and death brought about by a real God, Jesus. The gospel, the good news, is that Jesus has come and he has conquered. He is our king, and he is bringing his kingdom to earth. The word kingdom is also important in Mark. In fact, in Mark, the first thing that Jesus says is, The time is fulfilled and the kingdom is at hand. Repent ye and believe the gospel. What kind of kingdom is Jesus bringing? And what is he like as a king? We can answer these questions by exploring a threefold pattern of servant leadership. The basic pattern is this. Jesus predicts his death. His disciples misunderstand. They focus on worldly notions of leadership. And then Jesus explains servant leadership. Turn with me to Mark chapter 8, and we'll explore this pattern more carefully. In Mark 8, 31, we read, And Jesus began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things, and be rejected of the elders, and of the chief priests and scribes, and be killed, and after three days rise again. And he spake that saying openly. So there's the first prediction. Then Peter misunderstands. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. Peter is thinking, you're wrong, Jesus. You're a conquering king, not a suffering one. Then the Savior teaches servant leadership. In verse 34, Jesus says, Whosoever will come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whosoever will save his life shall lose it. But whosoever shall lose his life for my sake and the gospels, the same shall save it. 
That's the first round of this pattern. It's going to repeat again. If you flip the page to chapter 9, verse 31, we read, Jesus taught his disciples and said unto them, The Son of Man is delivered into the hands of men. They shall kill him. And after that he is killed, he shall rise the third day. Imagine you're one of Jesus' disciples. You're walking along with him. Jesus announces this, and then he walks ahead a few steps. So now you're just behind with your fellow disciples. What do you think he would start talking about? Maybe you'd say, wow, Jesus is telling us he's going to be killed. What does he mean? How can we help him out? Is that what the disciples said? In verse 33, we read that when they returned to Capernaum, Jesus asked his disciples, what were you arguing about on the way? But they were silent, for on the way they had argued with one another. Who was the greatest? Can you see how they're focused on a different kind of kingdom than Jesus is? So once again, Jesus teaches the disciples about servant leadership. In verse 35, he sat down, called the twelve, and said to them, Whoever wants to be first must be last of all and servant of all. Then he took a little child and put it among them, and taking it in his arms, he said to them, Whoever welcomes one such child in my name welcomes me, and whoever welcomes me welcomes not me, but the one who sent me. This pattern occurs a third time, starting in Mark chapter 10, verse 32. We read, Jesus took the twelve aside again and began to tell them what was to happen to him, saying, See, we are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be handed over to the chief priests and the scribes. They will condemn him to death. Then they will hand him over to the Gentiles. They will mock him and spit upon him and flog him and kill him. And after three days, he will rise again. When Jesus says this, what's an appropriate response? Something like, wow, thank you, Jesus. We love you. We're so grateful for you. But instead, right after Jesus pours out his heart, James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came forward to him and said to him, Teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask of you. What a strange statement. But Jesus, ever patient, says, What is it you want me to do for you? And they said to him, Grant us to sit one at your right hand and one at your left in your glory. While Jesus is explaining his death, James and John are focused on who gets the best heavenly seats. And in verse 41, we learn that when the ten heard this, they began to be angry with James and John. Once again, Jesus teaches about servant leadership, saying, You know that among the Gentiles, those whom they recognize as their rulers lord it over them, and their great ones are tyrants over them. But it is not so among you. But whoever wishes to become great among you must be your servant. And whoever wishes to be first among you must be slave of all. For the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life a ransom for many. The pattern is clear. Jesus predicts his death. The disciples misunderstand, focusing on worldly power. And Jesus teaches the importance of servant leadership. This is a powerful concept, and we probably have it in our heads, but more importantly, is it in our hearts? Take a moment to ponder, how does this pattern relate to you in your life right now? For example, what might servant leadership look like in a family context? Perhaps a parent believes that because she or he has gone to work and earned money for the family that they don't need to help with the dishes. Shouldn't others take care of that in appreciation for all the parent has done for the family? Or an aunt could be discouraged, feeling like her efforts to reach out to nieces and nephews are poorly received. Jesus might say to each of these individuals and to each of us, you must be the slave of all. For the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life a ransom for many. The third theme we'll discuss is how Mark uses the phrase, Son of God. There's something that Mark tells you and I, the reader, up front. 
in Mark chapter one, verse one, he says that Jesus is the son of God. So as the reader, you and I know from the beginning that Jesus is the son of God. And at Christ's baptism, the heavens were torn open. Remember that phrase. And God says to Jesus, you are my beloved son. But throughout the rest of the text of Mark, no human refers to Jesus Christ as the Son of God, not until after the death of Christ. After Christ's crucifixion, a Roman centurion standing near the Savior on the cross says, truly, this man was the Son of God. We probably tend to read that and think, oh yeah, that's interesting. But here's an insight from the book, The Gospel According to Mark by Julie Smith. By the way, this book is awesome. It's more than 900 pages of deep insights, and it shows that in our discussion today, we're just barely scratching the surface of Mark. If you're interested in a deep dive into Mark, I highly recommend this book, and I've linked to it on the course website. Going back to the idea that the centurion is the only human in Mark to identify Jesus as the Son of God, Smith writes, 2,000 years of Christian tradition have probably made it impossible to appreciate how odd it was for a soldier to look at the corpse of a criminal and announce that the dead man was God's son. The parallel with the baptism, where the voice from heaven pronounces Jesus to be God's son, makes the centurion's exclamation all the more profound because he is occupying the narrative role of God when he is the voice that attests to Jesus's identity. Just as the rending of the heavens comes immediately before the divine announcement that Jesus is God's son at the baptism, the rending of the temple veil comes immediately before the centurion's announcement that Jesus is God's son. Does that make sense? When Jesus died, the temple veil was torn. The Greek word that describes the tearing of the temple veil is the same word describing the tearing open of the heavens at Christ's baptism. So both at the baptism and the crucifixion, there was a tearing and a voice proclaiming that Jesus is the Son of God. At the baptism, it was God, and at the cross, it was a centurion. Julie Smith concludes, Mark's narrative teaches that the death of Christ makes it possible for a centurion to do what God does. Even a hated pagan soldier can be elevated to a godlike status and possess a godlike knowledge because of the death of Jesus. In this framework, we see the power of what happened at the cross. The Savior's death could take someone far outside the fold and bring them to the inside as one who recognizes Jesus as the Son of God. A fourth theme is called the Messianic Secret. There's a lot that goes into this idea, but for our purposes, when I talk about the Messianic Secret, I'm referring to how, especially in Mark, Christ consistently tells his followers not to tell people who he is or about the miracles he has done. For example, In Mark chapter 5, it has already been publicly announced that Jairus' daughter has died. But Jesus raises her from the dead and then strictly ordered them that no one should know this. Doesn't it seem strange that Jesus didn't want people to know she was alive? After all, they would find out when she was seen around town in the following days. But Jesus wanted to keep things quiet. Over and over and over again, he asked people not to tell others who he is or what he has done. We might ask ourselves, why is that? We don't know for sure. Maybe it's reverse psychology. If you tell somebody to do something, sometimes they do the opposite. And often when Jesus would tell people, don't tell anyone about this miracle, the people would go tell everyone. Maybe that's what Christ wanted. Or maybe he really did want to keep things quiet. Perhaps the Savior was trying to avoid crowds. He had things to do, and if word got out about his healing, he wouldn't be able to get to the places he needed to be. For me, the most interesting part of the Messianic secret is a reversal that takes place at the end of Mark's account. 
Let's read Mark chapter 16, verses 1 through 8. When the Sabbath was over, Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of James, and Salome brought spices so that they might go and anoint him. And very early on the first day of the week, when the sun had risen, they went to the tomb. They had been saying to one another, Who will roll away the stone for us from the entrance to the tomb? When they looked up, they saw that the stone, which was very large, had already been rolled back. As they entered the tomb, they saw a young man, dressed in a white robe, sitting on the right side, and they were alarmed. But he said to them, Do not be alarmed. You were looking for Jesus of Nazareth, who was crucified. He has been raised. He is not here. Look, there is the place they laid him. But go, tell his disciples and Peter that he is going ahead of you to Galilee. There you will see him, just as he told you. So they went out and fled from the tomb, for terror and amazement had seized them. And they said nothing to anyone, for they were afraid. Did you know that in the earliest available manuscripts of Mark, that's where Mark ends? Imagine, this is the end of Mark. Neither said they anything to any man, for they were afraid. The end. How does that change your experience as the reader or the listener? In our second class, we talked about textual criticism, meaning identifying the earliest text. This is an example of how textual criticism is interesting. The earliest available texts of Mark don't include verses 9 through 20. The discussion around these verses is complicated, and it's possible that these verses came from Mark or somebody who finished his account. But for our purposes, let's imagine that Mark originally ended in verse 8. Why would Mark end the good news on such an abrupt note? One intriguing possibility ties back to the messianic secret. Earlier, Jesus would do a miracle and say, don't tell anyone, and the people would go and tell. Now at the end, the young man says, go, tell the disciples, and the women say nothing. You and I, as the reader, are left in the empty tomb. It's as though Mark says to us, I told you from the very beginning that Jesus was the Son of God. Now what are you going to do? Are you going to stay in the tomb and be afraid, or are you going to go out and spread the good news? We've saved my favorite theme for last, the theme of discipleship failure. This is something that Mark continually emphasizes. Sometimes we will read an account of discipleship failure in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, all telling the same story. Sometimes it's only Mark and Matthew, or sometimes it's Mark and Luke. At times it's only in Mark. But if disciples are failing, Mark's probably going to be talking about it. The point is that Mark consistently shows how the disciples aren't living up to what they should be doing. And that's what I'm going to generally refer to as discipleship failure. Let's look at an example that shows how Mark emphasizes discipleship failure. Come with me to Mark chapter 6, verses 51 and 52, and we'll contrast how Mark and Matthew tell the same story differently. There's a storm on the Sea of Galilee, and Jesus comes walking on the water. This was incredible. Nothing like this had been seen before. How will the disciples react? In Mark chapter 6, verses 51 and 52, after Jesus got into the boat, we read, The wind ceased, and they were utterly astounded, for they did not understand about the loaves but their hearts were hardened. That's an example of discipleship failure. They were not seeing the miracle. Now jump back to Matthew chapter 14. This is Matthew's account of the same experience. In Matthew, once Jesus gets in the boat, we read, those in the boat worshiped him saying, truly you are the son of God. You can see how Matthew and Mark portray the reactions of the disciples differently. Let's look at one more contrast between Mark and Matthew. Earlier, we read in Mark 10 about how James and John asked Jesus if they could sit on his right and left hand. But in Matthew's account, it's the mother of James and John who makes this request. 
Matthew shifts things so that it's not James and John who are making the impertinent request, but their mother. These small differences shouldn't surprise us. When two people tell stories, they're going to recount things differently. We don't have to try to reconcile the accounts. We can just observe that Mark is emphasizing mistakes that the disciples make and frequently shows how they don't live up to what they probably should be doing. To me, this message of discipleship failure isn't a negative message. It's a hopeful message because I know a disciple who fails all the time. That's me. Even though the disciples are consistently failing, Jesus doesn't quit on them. He doesn't kick them off the team because they didn't run the play the right way. He's always welcoming them back, giving them another chance, and through his power, lifting them higher. I wonder if Mark includes these examples of discipleship failure to give hope to you and me when we fail. Let's look at two more examples of discipleship failure in Mark. First is Peter. Imagine you live in the first century and you're hearing the gospel of Mark for the first time. You're crushed when you learn that Peter denies Jesus three times. Then you hear about Christ's trial and crucifixion, and there's no mention of Peter. Mark does talk about other followers of Christ at the cross, but not Peter. If you're hearing this account for the first time, you might be thinking, wow, Peter really messed up. It's over for him. But Mark chapter 16, verse 7 has a detail that's only in Mark. The young man at the tomb says to the women, but go tell his disciples and Peter that he is going ahead of you to Galilee. There you will see him. I think that phrase, and Peter, is one of the most hopeful passages of Scripture. It's like the young man says, you're still on the team, Peter. You're not out. And I love that message. Even though the disciples fail, Jesus is still reaching out to them. What a message of hope for you and me as disciples who might not always be living up to what we're supposed to be. This is also a helpful message as we think about loved ones who are failing disciples. Perhaps somebody we love is sitting on the sidelines or even appears to be joining the team opposed to Christ. We can be patient and hopeful. Christ has helped many failing disciples. In addition, there might be people in our lives who aren't living up to our expectations. Maybe there's a church leader or a mentor in your life that let you down. Jesus' own disciples let him down, but Jesus still loved them and forgave them. We can follow in his footsteps. Our final example of discipleship failure is a little unusual. It's a disciple who is only mentioned in Mark, and we don't know his name. He's just referred to as a young man. At Gethsemane, after Jesus has been arrested, all the disciples flee. Then, in verse 51, we read, A certain young man was following Jesus, wearing nothing but a linen cloth. They caught hold of him, but he left the linen cloth and ran off naked. That's it. That's all we know about him. He's a failed disciple who ran away from Jesus when the going got hard. Let's jump ahead to Mark chapter 16. Did you notice how Mark doesn't talk about angels being at the tomb of Jesus? It says in verse 5, As they entered the tomb, they saw a young man dressed in a white robe. If we were to go back to our friend, the Blue Letter Bible, we would find that the phrase young man appears only two times in Mark. The young man who runs away naked and the young man at the tomb. Let me be clear that these are not necessarily the exact same person, but consider the possibility that Mark wants us to see a literary relationship between them. Note that the young man in Gethsemane was wearing a linen cloth. The only other time that the Greek word translated here as linen cloth is used in the gospel accounts is to describe the clothes that Christ was buried with. In Julie Smith's commentary, she says, The young man in Gethsemane was dressed in a linen cloth using the same Greek word as is used to describe Jesus' burial shroud. And he runs away, sans clothing, when the authorities attempt to arrest him. 
The young man is presented as a close follower, at least before he flees. That is a picture of shame. The cloth suggests that he showed up with the intent of dying with Jesus, but, under pressure, preferred the humiliation of running away naked to the pain of death. Jesus is crucified without clothing, just as the young man runs away without clothing, implying that Jesus is symbolically taking the young man's shame upon himself. When the young man reappears at the tomb, he is now wearing clothing associated with honor and glory, clothing described as being like Jesus' clothing at the Transfiguration. In other words, he has not only been restored from shame, but is now assuming an even more honorable position. In effect, Jesus has swapped roles with this young man and thus made the young man's restoration and glorification possible. The subtle but clear implication is that Jesus' death and resurrection have made this change possible for the young man. So as we step back and think about the theme of discipleship failure, I love remembering that even when we stumble, Christ still wants us on his team. He doesn't say, you've messed up and now you're out. He wants us with him, even when we have made serious mistakes. That's a really hopeful message for all of us who fail and as we work and live with other failing disciples. I hope that this brief overview of Mark has gotten you excited to further study his account of Jesus Christ. I strongly encourage you to listen to the full audio version of Mark linked at the course website. You will love it. We've covered a lot of ground today in our discussion of five themes from Mark. I started by sharing a story from my mission, and I'll conclude with one more. You know that in this church, we have the Articles of Faith, and one of the Articles of Faith says we believe in obeying, honoring, and sustaining the law. So that means that in this church, we believe in following the speed limit. As young missionaries, my companion, Elder Miller, and I were driving from Laramie, Wyoming, to Fort Collins, Colorado for his own conference. We were late. My companion was so righteous that he would not speed. Fortunately, I was driving, so I decided to speed up a bit. Elder Miller noticed, and he said to me, Elder Hilton, you're speeding. I said, I know. He said, speeding is against the law. I said, I know, and I kept on driving. Elder Miller said, I have a testimony that you should not speed. Well, I don't have that testimony, I replied. A couple of minutes later, I heard sirens and saw red lights flashing in the rearview mirror. As I pulled off to the side of the road, Elder Miller said, Looks like somebody's going to get a testimony. I got a ticket that day, but I did not gain a testimony of not speeding. As I've reflected on that experience and tried to gain that testimony, I realized that Christ taught, If any man will do his will, he shall know of the doctrine. You don't gain a testimony by breaking the commandments, but by living them. In a similar way, it's by doing things that connect us with Christ that we will have the personal experiences that help us know him. I hope that you and I can do things differently in our lives because of what we've discussed today. How could you apply these principles in your life? Perhaps you could draw closer to Christ by pondering on how he understands you and your real feelings. Or maybe you'll have a chance today to practice servant leadership. We might pause and consider how we could go share the good news of Christ, even with somebody like a Roman centurion, who we think might be unlikely to receive the message. We can also have patience with ourselves and others as we struggle with discipleship failure. Or maybe you'll decide to exert your mental faculties and dive deep into Julie Smith's book or other commentaries about Mark. Whatever you choose to do, I hope we've learned some things, that we really feel them in our hearts, and that we'll go and act on them, and as a result, draw closer to Jesus Christ. Thank you for listening today. We hope that you'll rate this podcast and leave a review. It makes a difference. This course is more than a podcast. There are several additional elements, including readings, PowerPoints, and other learning resources. 
These are all freely available at johnhiltoniii.com slash seekingjesus. We hope to see you there.